Uh, as Nathan announced, we're going to talk about Acts chapter 17 tonight. And uh, if you remember, Brother Justin left us in Acts chapter 16. And as they've been going on this journey through Macedonia, uh, we're going to end up in some various places tonight. And we're going to use some, a little bit of map to get our geograph- uh, geographical footing, if you will. And that's where we're going to start tonight in Acts chapter 17 with a few cities. Acts 17 verse 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Those already got my tongue tied. Okay, so here's, here's where we traveled last time. We went all the way from Antioch, and this is Antioch of Pisidia, not this Antioch, but this Antioch, up to Troas. And then there's a couple of islands right here. You remember that Samothrace and another uh, city there. And they end up in Philippi, which is where we ended chapter 16 in Philippi, where Lydia and also the Philippian jailer were converted. And from there, they're moving across now down across toward Thessalonica. And there's two cities that he mentions here. One is Amphipolis and the other is Apollonia. And these two cities, there's not much mention about them other than that Paul and Silas and Timothy pass through those cities on the way to Thessalonica. And that's where we're going to start our study tonight is in the city of Thessalonica. Now, uh, you probably recognize that name because there are two letters that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. And uh, we're not going to get into those letters tonight. We will read one verse from one of those letters a little bit later. Uh, But that's where we're at. We're in Thessalonica, which is still in Macedonia. And later, they're going to travel down through Berea and eventually end up down here in Athens uh, and then next time that we talk on Acts 18, we'll end up in Corinth. But right here is sort of the dividing line between uh, Macedonia and Achaia, which is what we now know as modern-day Greece. And Greece actually now extends up into the area where Berea is, and we'll talk about that a little more later. So that's where they're at. They're in Thessalonica. And it says, then Paul, when they got to Thessalonica, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reason them from the with them from the scriptures and when it says that he went in it's talking about into the synagogue which was the center of Jewish worship and there were synagogues in most of the big cities some of the small villages may have not had synagogues but when Paul went into a city that's the first place that he went regardless of being the apostle to the Gentiles Paul always went into the synagogues and reasoned with his countrymen, with the Jews, first before he went to the Gentiles. So Paul goes in and for three Sabbaths, it says, so three weeks, or or two weeks maybe, back to back. He goes in for three Sabbaths and reasons with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now, if you remember from previous studies... Uh, These Jews had a a wrong idea about the Messiah. They thought that when Christ came, he was going to be this victor. And he was going to have a victory over uh, carnal kingdoms and set up a throne in Jerusalem. And that's not what he came to do. In fact, Jesus came to set up a spiritual kingdom. And so these Jews with that wrong idea, Paul went in and what did he do? He reasoned with them. Well, How did he reason with them? He took the Old Testament 
and he showed them from the Old Testament. This was all prophesied about, and it'd be the same as us sitting down and trying to show someone a, a log of evidence and saying, look, this shouldn't be a shock to you. Look what Isaiah said. Look what Jeremiah said. Look at all the prophets and how they were telling, foretelling, that Jesus is the Christ and that that Christ would come and he would die and that after he would die, he would be resurrected. And all of that was necessary. And so as Paul is preaching to these Jews and beginning to demonstrate and convince them of these things, verse 4 says, some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So this word devout here is used 10 times in the New Testament. And six out of those 10 times, it's actually translated worship. And, and the word itself just means to adore or to revere. And so when it says devout Jews, it's, or devout Greeks rather, it's talking about God-fearing Greeks. And where are they at? They're in the synagogue. And so these aren't just your run-of-the-mill, if I can use that term, run-of-the-mill Greek. But these people are interested in Jehovah God. And in these places, they were accustomed to idol worship. And so these God-fearing Greeks have denied the idols that exist in the land, and they are worshiping Jehovah God in some capacity. Now, whether they were proselytes, which just means a converted Gentile to Judaism, we don't know. But they were devout Greeks, and they believed. And some of them were persuaded, and it says not a few of the leading women also joined Paul and Silas. And these leading women would have been prominent women of some notoriety there in the city of Thessalonica. So they joined Paul and Silas, it, it says. And, and that, that is, they joined them, they accompanied them, they were persuaded by them, they began to follow them. Well, now we're going to see something that's very familiar to the Gospels. And that is, the Jews that weren't persuaded don't like the fact that all these people who used to follow them are now following someone else. And so in the next verse, it says the Jews that were not persuaded became envious. They were envious of Paul and Silas, because now these people, they're following them around, looking for answers. And you remember, these guys, before, they're the answer men. And they like being the answer men. They like their status, and they, they like their position of power, and they like being in charge. And now they become envious, and it says they took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. This is very interesting. These Jewish men went and they found, it says, evil men from the marketplace. Evil men from the marketplace. And if, if you do a lot of word study, and we're not going to do a lot of word study on this tonight, but essentially what they did was they recruited these immoral men that just sat around in the marketplace idle. And that was a big deal in Thessalonica. In fact, it was such a big deal, some of those people were converted. And in 2 Thessal Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul actually writes about these idle people who won't work and refuse to work, that they need to get a job. And that was very customary in Thessalonica. There were people sitting around idle. You know what they were up to? No good. And it doesn't tell us what background these people had other than they were evil people. They were evil men from the marketplace. And essentially what he's doing is, is similar to what we might have seen in that they're recruiting these people to be bodies inside of a mob so they can go and they can cause some type of commotion in the city to start trouble, to start this loud commotion. Well, what do they do? They, they cause a commotion and they end up at Jason's house. And Jason's not here tonight. I was going to pick on him a little bit since he always picks on me. Uh, but they attacked the house of Jason. That is that they pressed against the house of Jason. And what they were doing was they were looking for Paul and Silas. 
And so they sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, that is Paul and Silas, instead they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now let's stop and think about this statement they made. Those who have turned the world upside down. They're talking about Paul and Silas. That's exactly what they did with going about preaching the gospel of Jesus. It changed the world in a way that nothing else will ever change the world. Nothing. Other than the judgment when God melts everything with fervent heat. But they turned the world upside down. It changed culture. It changed uh, the blending of two cultures. It, it changed the way that people viewed the world and, and the hope that was in the world. They turned the world upside down, and that obviously is hyperbole. That is, it's an exaggerated phrase. They didn't literally turn the world upside down, but they were causing a lot of commotion themselves by preaching the gospel. And so that's what they're accusing them of. And they said, Jason has harbored them. And so they're throwing this guy Jason here in with Paul and Silas saying essentially these guys are causing trouble and this guy's complicit in it. And then it says Jason has harbored them and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there's another king, Jesus. Well, that sounds familiar too, doesn't it? Because that's the same thing that the Jews in, in Jerusalem tried to pull on Jesus is going and saying, oh, he's saying don't, work, don't give uh, you know, allegiance or tribute to Caesar. Well, that wasn't at all what Paul and Silas were preaching. That wasn't what Jesus preached. But they were preaching there was a king, a new king. Because they were preaching the kingdom of God and they were preaching that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. And so this much is true. They were preaching that Jesus was king. Now as they're hearing all of this, again, they're, they're taking these people before the magistrates. And it says that they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So everybody's worried now. They're, they're concerned about what's going on. And it says, so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, this is, this is kind of hard to determine. And there's varying opinions about this. What does it mean that they took security from Jason? Some believe essentially that they taxed him. They fined him for what was going on there. And they were settled with whatever it was that Jason and these others gave them monetarily. And they let him go. Some have taken the position, well, what they were really doing was Jason and the others were explaining that Paul and Silas were not doing these things, that their conduct was good and well. Whatever the case, here's what we know. Whatever Jason and the others did, it caused them to go, hey, just let these guys go. This, this is nonsense. Just let them go. Well, that did not make the Jews happy because they're trying to start trouble. They want these guys stopped and they want them punished. But it was concerning enough what these guys were trying to do, that it says the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So they make a decision, we've got to get Paul and Silas out of town because these guys are not going to stop. There's going to be trouble, so let's just get them out of town. And again, they sent them out by night. Why by night? Easier to go in the covert, easier to be hidden from those people that are trying to attack you. So they send them out in a private and secret manner and that was something they had to do at times because they feared for their life. And, and we may not think these guys ever feared for their life. And they didn't when they were boldly proclaiming Christ. But there were other times they didn't want to die and they had a job to do. So they're trying to preserve their life and make sure that they're not killed senselessly over something that is of no profit. And so they end up leaving at night and they go to Berea. And um, it says when they arrived at Berea, what well, they do? Well, as Paul's custom was, they went into the synagogue. And so they're going to go into Berea now, and they're going to go, and they're going to talk to the Jews. Now, before we jump into the next verse and we talk about that, 
this is Thessalonica, and again, here's Berea. And uh, this town is still in existence. It's called by a different name. We'll notice that in a moment. This is about 40-some-odd miles from Thessalonica to Berea. And that's as the crow flies. If you drove it, it's a little further because the roads are kind of windy there in Greece. But about 43 miles from Thessalonica to Berea. And that probably doesn't, be, uh, that doesn't seem significant right now, but maybe it will in a minute. Okay, so they get to Berea and they go to teaching Christ in the synagogue. And it says these, that is these Bereans, these Jewish Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So Paul and Silas began to do the same thing. They're preaching Jesus, they're showing them out of the scriptures and it says that these people in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now that's not just a generic statement saying these people were more rich or they had a higher status in life than the people in Thessalonica. It's not about class or poverty or riches. This is about their nobility in their mind and in their heart. Their nobility is attached, notice, to in that they received the word with all readiness. And that word readiness means alacrity. And you say, well, that's not very helpful. Alacrity is enthusiasm or eagerness. They received it with eagerness. These people were eager to hear what Paul and Silas were teaching them. And not only were they eager to hear, they were open-minded, but they were also very skeptical. And so they searched the scriptures. And you know what God calls that? Noble. It's noble to be open-minded, to listen, but also to compare it to the scriptures and search the scriptures to find out whether or not what is being said is the truth. That's a noble thing. But always, always, always open the scriptures to see whether or not those things are so. And that's what these people did. Now, let's not become confused and think that he's saying that the Berean Christians were more noble than the Thessalonican Christians. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying the Berean Jews were more noble than the Thessalonican Jews because of the way that they approached the reception of the Word of God. In fact, if you look at the Thessalonican Christians, they were very noble as well. Notice, and here's our verse, one verse from, Thess- from Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. Paul said, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. They were so noble that Paul said, We are perpetually thankful to God because of the way that you received our preaching when we were there, because you didn't view it as, Oh, this is Paul and Silas talking. You viewed it as, this is God speaking to us. And he said, that's a very good thing. And we thank God that you did that. Because when you believe the word of God, which you heard from us, it effectively worked in you. So the Christians at Thessalonica, while they may have not as been a big a group at that time as the ones in Berea, they were still fair-minded. But it's the Jews that he's talking about. So we're going to go back and read verse 11. And now attach it with verse 12 because they go together. Acts 17, 11, and 12 now, again, about the Bereans. They were fair-minded. This is for the New King James Version. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. Not only were they fair-minded, they were skeptical, 
They looked into those things. They examined those things. It sounds like together as a group. And when they made the decision of what they concluded upon the evidence that they had viewed, they believed. And it says, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So again, you've got prominent men and women who are Greek who also believe here in Berea. So again, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we're seeing this pattern, aren't we? That Jews and Greeks are both being converted. And again, it doesn't necessarily uh, attach this to uh, devout Greeks, but they were in the synagogue, so most likely these Greeks here in Berea are also God-fearing Greeks, for lack of a better term. Now, they're in Berea. They're, they've left Thessalonica for fear of life, fear, fear of death rather, not fear of life, but fear of death fear losing their life. They've traveled 43 miles. It seemed like they'd be in a safe place, right? But look at verse 13. Now, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. These guys are relentless. And you know what? Some have looked at this and said, well, what goes around comes around because Paul, when he was persecuting Christians, also had the exact same zeal that they did. And and maybe, you know, that's true. But here's, here's what we do know about this. These guys were very zealous to persecute Paul. And again, it says, then immediately the brethren sent Paul away. Because they're worried about Paul. They, they want Paul to live. They know that the work that he's doing is important. And so it says that they sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So these guys, they're, you know, 43 miles is not much for us. But a walk, 43 miles, is a long journey for these guys to come just so they can find Paul. And so it says that they sent Paul away to the sea. Now, this is a modern-day map. And this city is now Verea. And that's modern-day Berea. It was Berea, now it's Verea. Or as it was known, Beroia. Or Veroia is how they would say it, similar to that. And if you notice, the closest water from Veria is down here at the Thermaic Gulf, at this little part right here. Now, as you drive that, it's 34 miles. As the crow flies, it's a little less than 30 miles. Here's, here's what I'm telling you. They sent Paul away to the sea. And so he goes to water. I don't know if it's the closest water, but to the sea nevertheless. So he's going a great distance just to get away from these guys. And after he gets away from him, then they make the decision to take him down to Athens. And so it says those who conducted Paul, that is those who sent Paul away to the sea, brought him to Athens. And the rest of our chapter is going to be in Athens tonight. They brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So... Uh, first off, let's talk about who's being commanded what and what's going on here. So these people that brought Paul to Athens were the ones that were commanded for Silas and Timothy to come, and they're the ones that departed. Silas and Timothy aren't departing. These people are being told, I want Silas and Timothy by Paul to come down to Athens. So they leave to go deliver that message to Timothy and to Silas. Now, uh, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. So Paul's waiting for them at Athens. And we're going to read the rest of this verse in a moment, but he's waiting for them at Athens. Well, how long did he wait? Well, I don't know. But here's, here's the thing. Athens is 246 miles. 246 miles from Berea. So probably waited a hot minute, you know. Um, these guys got to go back and get them, tell them, and then they got to come down. And so he's there alone for a little while. 
Um, I looked on Google to see how long it would, it would take you to walk from Berea to Athens. It said 79 hours. Um, that's at about three and a half miles per hour. So some might say, well, that's just three days. Well, yeah, it is if you walk 24 hours a day. So probably a week's journey if you're traveling and you're really, really determined to get there in a quick amount of time. So Paul is alone, and he's waiting for Timothy and Silas, and he's in Athens. And it says, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the, with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So as Paul's custom was, he goes into Athens and he finds the synagogue and he begins to reason with the Jews and with the devout Gentiles. In fact, this word worshipers here, same Greek word that we read earlier that said devout Greeks. Exact same word. So he's given us the same sense. And he also reasoned with whoever happened to be in the marketplace. And so Paul is just going around Athens and he is preaching Jesus. He's reasoning with people. I want you to notice in verse 16 that it says when Paul was waiting for them, his spirit was provoked because of the idol worship he saw. And that was a huge thing in Athens. They had a lot of mythological gods, and you're probably familiar with a lot of those mythological gods like Zeus and Hera and uh, Ares and Hercules. And, you know, they, they had a lot of different mythological images that they believe were actual gods. Now, their view of those gods is very different from our view of our God. And we'll talk about that in just a moment, the difference between how they viewed their gods and how we view uh, Jehovah God, the one true and living God. But Paul was seeing all of the idol worship, and it was grieving him. And as he went around reasoning uh, and talking to people in the marketplace, he got the attention of some of the locals. And these locals are the philosophers in Athens. And Athens was the center of philosophy in the world. Now, Corinth was a close second. There was a lot of philosophy at Corinth. And if you look through the first Corinthian letter, you're going to see a lot of things that Paul talks about regarding philosophy and the foolishness of worldly philosophy. Uh, but that's who he's encountering here is these philosophers. Now, uh, let's read this first and then I'm going to comment on some things. It says, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And what they mean by foreign gods is he's talking about a God that we don't know about. It's, it's a God that's foreign to us. And some just viewed Paul as some babbler. And that word babbler means an empty talker. That's what it means, an empty talker. In other words, this guy talks nonsense. That's what they thought about Paul. Some of them did. And, and others just thought that he was just proclaiming to them some foreign God. Now, uh, let's, we're going to come back to that in a moment, but I want to pause for a moment, and I want to think about Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Why does the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to include the details of these philosophers' background? Why doesn't he just say philosophers? Why Epicurean and Stoic? And I think if we'll dig into that for just a moment, it'll help us understand why Paul's message was the message that he gave and why it was so vastly different from every other gospel message that we see in the scriptures. So the Epicureans were followers of a guy named Epicurus. 
And uh, Epicurus was quite an interesting fellow. Um, their philosophy was focused on maximizing pleasure. We know that as hedonism. And typically what hedonism is, is you do what feels good. And the more you do what feels good and the more you stay away from what feels bad, the happier you'll be. That's hedonism. Maximize pleasure, minimize pain. Well, their idea was a little bit different in that they believed in controlled hedonism. And what that means is there were certain aspects of hedonism that they felt like were harmful or bad for you, even though they might be pleasurable. So they believed that peace of mind and absence of bodily pain were the ultimate goal of life. And while general hedonism is one of indulgence, Epicurus taught uh, that overindulgence actually caused suffering. And so to overindulge would actually not be part of this goal in life to experience pleasure. So he at least was was open-minded enough to understand that overindulgence was bad. But along with that, he also recommended that anything that was passionate love was bad and even recommended to people that they don't get married. So that was another thing that this guy was part of his philosophy. Now, uh, Epicurus and his followers also, they generally withdrew themselves from politics for Obvious reasons, because they felt like peace of mind was a goal in life. And this is their explanation. If you involve yourself in politics, you're either going to get your peace of mind taken away because of the conflict it causes, or you may get to some height of status that causes you to no longer uh, be able to follow this path that they felt like was the most important path in life. Now, that may not make a lot of sense right now. We'll get back to that. They also rejected life after death, patently. They said that there is a soul in man, but the soul dies along with the body. So they rejected eternal life and immortal life. And they also rejected determinism. What determinism is, it's sometimes called fatalism. And what, what we would call it is fate or destiny. They rejected the idea that there was some supreme being that was interacting and involved with mankind. They felt like those gods were perhaps watching mankind, but never actually interacted or intervened in any way or stirred the pot. And they didn't necessarily look at this idea of determinism as a, as a puppet master puppeteering people, but rather just someone who was involved within mankind. They rejected that. Now, why we're going through that is because the Stoics were the exact opposite. And these guys were actually intellectual opponents in a lot of ways. And so it's interesting that they're coupled together here in this group that this is who is coming and approaching Paul. Now, the Stoics were founded by a guy named Zeno of Sidium. And they were actually called the Zenonites for a while. And they changed the name from Zenonism to Stoicism because they didn't believe that their founders, particularly Zeno, uh, that his wisdom was perfect. They didn't believe that, and so they didn't want the Stoics to become a cult of personality. In other words, they wanted people to be Stoics and follow the Stoic philosophy, but they didn't want them to have their loyalty attached to some man or some figure. So they just changed the name from Zenicism to Stoicism. Now... Uh, you may have heard the word stoic, and we say the word stoic, meaning emotionless or feelingless. That really wasn't them, uh, but that is where the word came from. Another word we are familiar with is the word cynicism, which we say cynicism, meaning sort of like you're just very cynical about life, and you're just very negative and think everything is doom and gloom and the sky is falling and that sort of thing. But cynicism was another philosophy in Greece and my point of pointing this out was Zeno's philosophies had their roots all the way back through cynicism going back to Socrates. And I know that's a very familiar philosophical figure, Socrates. Now, 
To add some things to this, they believe that sexual exploration, or at least Zeno believed, that sexual exploration for educational and experiential enlightenment was virtuous. They said their motto was live by virtue. Live by virtue. Well, here's what they said. It is virtuous to explore sex for educational and experiential enlightenment. This included multiple partners, homosexuality, and even young boys and girls. Okay, now, here's why I'm telling you this. When we read these letters written to Corinth, they were gravely affected by Stoicism because it was the most prominent philosophy in the world at the time. So you'll understand why the Corinthians were involved in the things they were involved in before they became Christians and why they felt like that was acceptable and it was fine. And some of these same things are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6 that some of those Corinthian brethren were actually involved in some of this before they were washed and justified and sanctified. And so this philosophy, it wasn't just abstract. It was affecting the way that people lived and how they practiced their life. And later, some of the Stoics actually challenged these views. I want to make a point of that, that not all the Stoics held to Zeno's what we might call sexual freedom and the beliefs that he had about that. Okay, so here's, here's where it really gets important that we understand a little bit about Stoics. They felt like the universe was God. Now, keep this in mind. They believe in a lot of gods, but they felt like the universe was a god in and of itself. And, and it, it comes from this idea of logos or sperma logos, which means that reason created the universe. And everything that breathed and moved and existed was attached to this original generator of all matter of all things, which was the logos. Now, why are we talking about this? Because Paul's going to talk about it. He's going to make a reference to it in his sermon because they're confused about this. They think that God is the universe. They also believed in fate. And again, they didn't believe that there was this puppet master that was puppeteering, but they did believe this. They believed that whatever happened in the past determined your, past, your present and your future. And they thought that certain things that had already happened had determined how their life was going to end up, and there was no way that you could change that. They felt like free will in some ways was just nothing more than an illusion. So while they taught that virtue was the principal way to happiness, notice the difference in what they thought and what the Epicureans thought. This was one of their uh, philosophers. Uh, I can't think of the guy's name. It just escaped me. But he said this. He said, sick and yet happy, in peril and yet happy, dying and yet happy, in exile and happy, in disgrace and happy. And essentially what he's saying is you can be happy in whatever state of life you're in. Now, that's very similar to what we believe. However, when it's all wrapped up in all this garbage, you can understand that some of how they viewed virtue was very messed up. I don't know how else to say it. It was very messed up. Okay, so I hope we have some idea of who Paul's preaching to, of his audience. Because this is who he's talking to, philosophers. And these philosophers took him, and that word took means seized. It wasn't, they didn't say, hey, Paul, come with us. They grabbed him, and they took him, and they took him to this place called Areopagus, which Areopagus means the hill of Ares. And Ares is also known uh, by his Roman name as the Roman god Mars. And so that's why it's called Mars Hill, the hill of Ares or the hill of Mars. And this place was a center of judgment. It was like the Supreme Court. And so if you went to Areopagus, you were going there before a council of judges. And so that's where they're taking Paul. And they say, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you're bringing some strange thing to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. 
they're not really interested in the truth of what Paul's saying. These philosophers, when all they do is sit around and talk about philosophy, they eventually run out of new things. And that's what they're excited about. And that's what these people were doing. They hung around this place because they were just wanting to hear something new. And Paul was talking about something new. He was talking about something they hadn't heard about. And so that's what they want to hear Paul talk about. Now, they probably didn't anticipate that Paul would tell them the things that he did. And so Paul has his moment where he gets to preach to all these philosophers. And again, these are godless people. And I mean godless people in that they don't know who God is. They, they've got lots of gods, and Paul's going to point to that, but they're godless people. Then Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus, of the, the Areopagus, which is talking about the council, and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. Now, uh, if you look at the King James, it says too superstitious. And, and this is one of those words that has a bad sense and a good sense. And it's a very, very long word. And I'm going to try to say this. It's dicey dahi monasteros. That's a big, long word. And essentially, it just means more religious than others. That's what it means, more religious than others. He's pointing out to the fact that they were devout to their false gods. And he says, I, I perceive that you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, he's talking about the idols. He said, I even found an altar with the inscription, this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Here's what Paul does. This is masterful teaching. He, he looks at them and he says, I looked and I saw all these idols. And then I, he said, I, I perceive that you're uh, very religious. And he said, I, I even saw an altar that was to an unknown God, God that you don't know. Now, there's a history behind that, which we don't have time to dive into. But, but they didn't know. They, they were leaving open. There may be a God. We don't know his name. And Paul said, I want to tell you about the God that you don't know his name. You don't know who he is. It's masterful what he's doing, the way he's setting up the way to teach. And he, what he's going to do through this sermon is use several things that are very familiar to them to teach them the truth. Now, he's not validating what they believed. He's using what they believed in order to help them understand the truth about God and about his son. And so he starts here. He's not commending them for having an idol to the unknown God. He's saying there's a God that you obviously don't know who he is, and I'm going to tell you about him. Now, let's see what he tells them about this God. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made of hands. You know what he says? He challenges their beliefs. They did not believe that a God created the world. They believed that the world, the universe, was a God. And that all these other gods, they, they weren't creator of anything. But he said, God who made the world... He's the one that generated life. He's the one that created the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live inside of something that's constructed by man. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. That's their belief. And he's telling them, you're, you're misunderstanding. There is a generator of life. That all things come from, that all matter comes from, that everything that exists comes from. But it's a person, it's the God of heaven, who is Lord of heaven and earth. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundary of their dwellings. You know what he said? There is some determinism. 
God did determine certain things. There is a sense of fate in this. In the, in the Tower of Babel, what did God do? He spread man around. He put them in their certain dwellings, and he created boundaries, and he placed them in these places. So at the pre-appointed time, when it was appropriate, the gospel message could be spread. And these men and their culture and everything that's gone on with them all this time, now Paul comes in at the appropriate time and says, you need to know the God that you don't know. Why did God do that? Because he's put eternity in man's heart. And he spread them around and he, he put them in places so that they should seek the Lord, that they might grope for him, feel for him, and find him. And listen, though he is not far from each one of us. You know what the Stoics believed? That not only was there a God, that man was connected to that God. Paul said, that's true. He is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. That word being means existence. We exist because of him. As also, now this is peculiar, as also some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. You know, not one time in this sermon does Paul quote the Old Testament. Not one time. You know why? Because they don't know the Old Testament. They're not looking for Messiah. They're not looking for the, the fulfillment of prophecy. They were all wrapped up in philosophy. So where did Paul teach them? Where they were. He taught them where they were. He said, we're God's offspring. And you know this. Even your own poets said we're his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. You know what he said? We are created by God. We don't create God. We don't create God. We're created by him. We're his offspring. We're from God. He isn't from us. You can't make God. How could you be the offspring of God if you make your God? That makes no sense. They believe that we came from God. They just don't know who he is. They have no idea who God is. And he said, truly these times of ignorance God winked at, or he overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. What times of ignorance did God overlook? What Paul doesn't say is God in the past overlooked all ignorance. No, he didn't. Go look at Old Testament. There's a lot of ignorance God did not wink at nor look. What's he overlooking? Not knowing him. But things have changed. Because see, God told Israel, I want to know you and you're going to know me. And he gave them his law and they knew God. But the other world, they didn't know God. The rest of the world didn't know God. But he said, that's changed. Because now God, listen, commands all men everywhere. What does that mean? It means all nations. It means every creature. It means Jew and Greek. It means everyone. God wants everyone to know him. And he's going to make himself known. And he, he winked at the ignorance of man not knowing him. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, notice how that is coupled with verse 31. Why does God command all men everywhere to repent? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, that's Jesus Christ, whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this to all by raising him from the dead. You know what he said? Here's why God is telling all men to repent. Because there's something God's determined. It's a day. A day when every person will stand before Jesus Christ, whom God appointed to be the judge. And so God is saying, know me, know me. And I'm not going to allow, I'm not going to overlook ignorance anymore because there's a day when everybody's going to be judged. You know what the apostles did? They took that message to the entire world, to the entire world. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. 
while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So when some heard about the resurrection, remember, because Epicureans and Stoics alike, they do not believe in immortal life, and they just laugh. They think, this guy's crazy. That's foolish. They just mocked at him when he mentioned the resurrection of the dead. But others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, however, some men joined him and believed among them Dionysius, the Areopagite. Now, Areopagite is not like Benjamite. It doesn't mean tribe. It's not like Midianite. It's not telling us where he came from. Areopagite means he belonged to the council. He was a judge on Mars Hill. And Paul converted him that day. And if he didn't convert anybody else, that would have been a successful day. But then he also converted this woman named Damaris. And a lot of people believe Damaris was uh, Dionysius' wife. And re for reasons of this word woman can mean woman, it can mean wife. It's used interchangeably in Scripture. Regardless of that, if she's not uh, married to him, she's obviously a woman of notoriety like we've been seeing. And then it just says, and others with him. Paul's message was effective. He didn't use one scripture, but he preached to them Jesus and he preached to them the living God. Because he started where they were at. You know why Paul did that? Why, why did he preach so differently to them? Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 9. This is where we'll close our study tonight. He said, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. And to those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law. Not being without law toward God but under law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became a weak as weak. That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. You know what he did? He adapted. He adapted. It doesn't mean he pretended. That, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's not saying, I just went and pretended to be like, I was a Greek, or I pretended I was a Jew. I, that's not what he means. He means, I met them where they were. And, and if somebody was weak, well, then I became weak, so I could win the weak. And if somebody was a, a Greek, well, guess what I did? I became a Greek. I became as those without law. These men didn't have the law. They didn't know the law. They didn't know anything about the law. But he said, I became like them to understand so that they could understand that there's a God in heaven that loves them. There's a son of God who died for them and they can have salvation through him. I became all things to all men that by all means I might save some. You know what? We're called to do the same. We've got to meet people where they are. Where they are. You know what people need? They need Jesus. Some people know nothing about Jesus. They couldn't find the book of Genesis. They're not worried about arguing doctrine. They don't know doctrine. They don't know anything. You know what we've got to do? We've got to start where they're at. We've got people that know doctrine, but they may be like these people, and they've got a lot of doctrines that have been impressed in their brain. They've been conditioned to, to believe certain things all their life. You know what we've got? We've got to start where they are. And that's what Paul did. And we can't look at anybody and say they're irredeemable. They're not worth it. They're unreachable. Maybe they are, but that's not up to us to determine. What we have to do is preach the cross of Jesus Christ to the Jew, to the Greek, to the bond, to the free, to the weak, to the strong, to the white, to the black, to the Hispanic. We've got to preach Jesus Christ to everybody because God has made us all, and he made us all of one blood, all of one blood. We're his offspring. Everybody, every man, every woman, every child is the offspring of God, and they deserve our attention because we're the light of the world. Paul understood that. And so he went into Athens, and he went into the midst of an uncomfortable situation surrounded by idols. And he said, people, I want you to know who God is, and I want you to know his son.
The lesson is yours. We offer the invitation of Jesus at this time. If you don't know God and you want to know God, we want to help you do that. If you're not a child of God and you know what you need to do to be saved, we want to help you become a Christian tonight. And if you are a Christian tonight and you're having struggles in your life, we also offer the invitation for you at this time. If you need prayers for strength or comfort or anything else, please come have a seat as we stand and we sing.